welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode... Yeah. <clears throat> Hold on a second. All right, I got the go-go juice. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 54 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast all about tabletop gaming. My name is King Scott. And I'm just Patrick. And today we have a tremendous episode chock full of adventures from Jurassic World to Widget Ridge and a lot more, as well as our feature review of Awaken Realms The Great Wall. And in the time warp, we'll be talking some Arnak. Oh, yes, indeed. And it doesn't end there, Scott. We've got a visit from Archmage. Andrew's going to talk a little guillotine. We'll round things off with a recap of a recently completed legacy game. Oh, uh, so does that mean that you finished Clank Legacy? Yes, sir. And I want to talk all about it. But I figure we're going to save this for the end of the episode in lieu of a discussion, just in case I slip up and spoil a thing or two. This way, it'll it'll be tucked in the back. There you go, adventurers. You got your spoiler warning right now. <laughs> Scott, I know you were on vacation, but that didn't stop you from doing a little BGA with Jesse and I. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was definitely doing it. I was uh, off in the... Land of Yaman in Jamaica, still had a chance to get a little bit of gaming in on BGA. This is such a great platform in order to take up that little bit of time whenever you're waiting for your wife to get ready to go out for dinner, or you may be thinking, well, what are we going to do? Or one of the big things that you got down there was those weird rain showers that would pick up just for like five, 10 minutes. So, hey, let's get BGA out. So we got a chance, we're hitting Tapestry, Blood Rage, and still one of my favorites, Res Arcana on oh, there. Oh, fun game. Hey, you got in a big win, a five-player Seven Wonders Architects. Oh, I, I still really enjoy that game there. It's such a nice, quick little game. Very, very simple to play. Great way to spend some time. Tell you what, we've been doing that asynchronous play. There's a couple of ways that you can play on Board Game Arena. One, mm-hmm. you, well, I mean, there are several ways, but two of the most popular. One of which is everyone's sitting in front of their computer or phone and playing at the same time. And then there's good old asynchronous play where I'll take my turn. And then when you log in, you take your turn. And then maybe a few hours later, I see that I have a notification that you've done it. So I log in and I take my turn back and forth, wash, rinse, repeat for a few days, and you've completed a game. We've been doing that. And I got a fun story for you, Scott. Okay. My neighbors are getting up there in years. My, They're pushing 90, right? She is half blind and he just had hip surgery, so they can't drive. Oh, boy. My wife, yeah. My wife puts Sarah to bed and the doorbell rings. So it's like nine o'clock in the evening. What in the world? Mm. I go and answer. There's my neighbor. She says, my cat needs to go to the vet. Oh, no. Like my first instinct was, does he really? (laughs) I was was trying to get out of it, but I was like, ah, I can't. I got to do this. So, all right, let's let's take your cat to the vet. We get there. We go up to the counter and like, did you pre-register your your pet online? And Okay, she's 90, right? So she's like, no, I don't do any of that. Their registration is done on an iPad. So they start to hand her an iPad and she looks offended. She's like, oh, no, no, I don't do those things. So they look at me. (laughs) Right? And I'm like, just the neighbor. Oh, God. So I, 
all right, so I have to sit down and do this thing. So we took the cat there because the cat wasn't eating. And I'm, I'm asking her all these questions, filling it out on the iPad. And it was like, okay, when was the last time the cat ate? And she was like, oh, it was uh, probably three o'clock. And I'm doing the that's like six hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to the emergency vet half an hour away in the middle of the night because because the cat hasn't eaten food for five hours. Oh, dear. Anywho, I'm sitting there and we've got this long wait. I even said to the receptionist, like, look, I'm the neighbor guy. I'm doing a favor. Give it to me straight. Am I looking at an hour, two hours? He's like, well, mm-hmm. it depends. If we have to do some sort of operation, you could be here till morning. And I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> So we're sitting in the waiting room and, and great things started happening. I got that email notification from BGA saying, hey, uh-huh. tapestry, it's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> and I had the futurist. So I was like, oh, well, I like the future. I'm doing good this game. Boy, that was the best game of tapestry I ever played. But it was wonderful because I kept getting that little notification. So I was like, look, there's not much internet reception in this room. I was like, Miss Patty, I got I got to run outside for just a second. And I kept going, oh, log in, BGA, make my play. And then go back in and sit down. I was like, it was very important. Sorry about that. <laughs> Patrick, you're a junkie. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was rough. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, our side quest Kickstarters are doing great. We had Adventures on the Horizon 5 paths. They have funded Solar 175. I think Joe and Maddie hit like 800%. I'm wow. really happy to see that one. Yes. Hey, Adventures, time of recording. Feuds and Favors is on a trajectory to fund. We've got one week left when this episode airs. So get back and listen to our Feuds and Favors episode. Check that game out on Kickstarter. Speaking of Kickstarter, Scott, there's one I want to talk a little bit more about. One that we brushed on after PAX. Oh, 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 I think I know what one you're talking about. Yeah, I'm talking about Jurassic World Legacy of Isla Nublar. Oh, yes, yes. This one looks like an absolute winner, and I cannot wait to get a chance to play this thing. So this one's coming to us from Prospero Hall. It's a legacy game for two to four players. So legacy game. Let's start there. We reference that all the time. Scott, we still have to do our episode where we go over terms. Some of the things that we talk about regularly. Oh, yes, yes, some newer yes, folks we do. No, Legacy game is one of them. Most of you know it's a game where you are in some way going to alter the game, be it writing on components or tearing up components. <gasps> Big gasp. Ah. Ah. <laughs> Adding components to your game, altering the board, etc. In some way, you're going to be making permanent changes to the game. Now, we talked about Jurassic World, Legacy of Isla Nublar in our PAX recap, the episode that we had Hungry Gamer Will Brown on. He joined us. There's a ton of board game talk in that episode, but this is one that we wanted to chat about because we had that little sneak peek at the end of PAX. They showed us some components. They gave us a brief overview, but not a whole lot about the gameplay. We did get to see a lot of the art, and I know that stuck out for you. Oh, man, the artwork in this, I mean, just blew me away. It really gives you the old feeling of the old EC comics and the creepy and eerie comics age with the pulp style feel of of the paper and everything. Just absolutely spectacular, because whenever you look at it, you have Island Nublar and Jurassic Park where they're cutting edge with you, you look at the movies and I mean, they made you believe that. My God, there's actually a dinosaur right there. It holds up today, doesn't it? Oh, God, it does. 
Then you get that old kind of grimy looking artwork from like the 1920s of the gumshoe detectives and all that kind of stuff. It is such a cool dichotomy of two different styles being pushed together. And you look at the board. It's just a happy looking board. Look, it's an island. There's pretty little colors. But, you know, they're pretty little colors filled with death. So, uh, you know, that's going to happen there at some point in time. All right. I'm going to insert a random thought here. All right. You're a little bit older than I am, but when I was a kid, my my mom and grandma, they were like, well, you have to watch The Wizard of Oz. And I think that they thought my mind was going to be blown when it went from black and white to color because yes. I'm sure that that was like a mind-blowing moment in cinema. But oh, you know, well, by yes. the time I was – you know, by the time the late 80s rolled around, I was like, eh, you know, okay, I've seen color TV. It wasn't that big a deal, right? I think for me, for my generation, when they first see the Brontosaurus in Jurassic Park, that's my – Wizard of Oz putting in color moment that someday I'm going to tell Sarah like, oh, watch this part. Watch this part. She's not going to be blown away like I was. She's going to be like, daddy, we can watch the movies like standing right in front of us now. (laughs) Duh. And random thought. Okay, let's talk a little bit Jurassic World Legacy of Isla Nublar. This is a legacy game that's going to play over the course of 12. You have 12 campaigns. Whether or not you, adventurer, feel that that's enough for your $120 that they're asking for the game, that I suppose is up to you. So each adventure is going to have four rounds. And in each round of play, it's going to begin with revealing a round card. These are simply like modification cards that change the game up in some fashion. Next, you're going to scout sectors. The board is a bunch of squares. Scott, you said it's a pretty little board. I think it's kind of bland. It's, it, I mean, it's colorful, yes, but it's just yeah. squares. It looks yeah, like a collection like of I squares said, barfed onto a board. Like I said, it's just cute little squares filled with death. What makes a square cute? It's a square. But it's happy little colors. Come on. Go, go back to your Bob Ross repeats oh, here. No. You know there's happy little colors. Well, what I do know is it looks like these are going to be seeded with face-down sector cards or tiles that you can explore as you enter them. And they're often going to contain some valuable information to help you plan your actions accordingly in order to complete your scenario successfully. Third part of a turn, you get to carry out your actions, which of which you have like standard actions. But it looks like there's going to be buildings and special cards introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they probably have some to start with, but then I think they're going to introduce them as your campaign progresses to give you new and different actions moving forward. Yeah, it's there's so many things that could happen in this. And that's one of the things that I think works for this Kickstarter right now is the mystery of it. You have an idea of some of the things going on, but there's so much that you're just like, well, what's going to happen now? It's like whenever you would look at the, okay, here we go with my age again. Look at the old Sears wish book at Christmas time. You look at those toys in there. You're like, oh my God, that looks so cool. I wonder what it's like in real life. Circle everything. (laughs) next up we're going to be activating dinosaurs this is where you're going to reveal the remaining sector cards and activate herbivores then carnivores they're going to move and then they're going to hunt any prey that is within range and finally if nothing is in range you actually roll a zone die to determine if dinosaurs might ambush that zone so even if you think you're safe and in the clear well if they don't have anything to hunt you roll a die so there's still a chance that they can get you Uh cleanup's going to be performed 
then you're going to be ready for your next round. So essentially, Scott, it looks like what we have here is a dinosaur park management game, which we have seen before in Dinogenics, Dinosaur Island, but with scenarios for each of the 12 legacy plays and, of course, the expected legacy treatment. Quite frankly, if you just tell me this is Dinogenics, the legacy game, I'm in. I'm sold. Mm-hmm. Just adding the Jurassic Park thing because there's so much love of that property. Getting the actual IP. Oh, yeah. yeah, That's a huge thing there as well, too. So we're revisiting this because the Kickstarter is live and there's more to share now that we have the page live. And I think Dice Tower has a preview up because they're the Dice Tower. Oh, yes. Rulebook's live. It's accessible on the Kickstarter page. And as you might have guessed, there are plenty of spots that are blank with like numbers, which you know that's going to be stickers where you add rules into the book. I wanted to go over the components a bit because that's going to give us an idea of what we might expect to see, starting with the adventure guides. Mm -hmm. These are scenario books. And Scott, the covers of them, I don't know if you've looked at the page yet. It looks like a comic book. Yes, yes. And that's one of the things that just blew my mind there. It looks like you're looking at an old 1920 detective novel. I love it. Love it so much. I'm guessing that you don't start with all of them available, but the game has 21 characters. Shut up. I didn't really? know that there were that many characters in the movie. Really? I know. I mean, well, I, I won't go into counting them right now. 12 dinosaurs are in the game, complete with a miniature, but only four of them are going to be available at the start of the game. And from the sounds of it, you might not actually unlock all all 12. Wow. That makes me think that the game's not on rails. And what I mean by on rails, uh, it, that's another thing that we use, and we should probably explain that. If something is on rails, think of a create your own adventure book. Some things have to happen where no matter what you choose, you have to get to the castle. No matter what you choose, they will find a way to make sure that you, uh, I don't know, swim in the brook. You know what I mean? Like there are steps that have to be taken in order to create a complete story. It sounds like this isn't necessarily going to do that. You know, if there, if I can finish the campaign and have some cards that were never used, stickers that were never used, dinosaurs that weren't unlocked, that's not disappointing to me. That makes me feel like, oh, wow, mine really is unique compared to others. Yeah, it, it definitely looks like it's going the route of, look at Disney World. You have those rides like the ride of Peter Pan or Winnie the Pooh, where you're actually in a car on rails. And now that they have upgraded things now with the Rise of the Resistance, there are no rails. You're going all over the place. So it feels like a whole new adventure. Now, granted, you don't have all the expansions of where you can go. Like, no, I want to go over there. It's just showing like how things are expanding and how they're making things even better and Mm -hmm. letting you decide what you want to do. And it's just a great angle that they're taking with this game. Patrick, one thing I was looking here at, and um, I'll be honest, this troubles me a little bit because it says (laughs) that there is 193 stickers. Oh, talk about modifications. Scott, 193 of, you figure over the course of 12 games, 193 stickers, that's an average of... uh, Um, Well, it's a lot of stickers every game. That's, yeah, no doubt. My favorite thing is the Velociraptor claw in the game. According to their page, it's used for scratch-offs, like a scratch-off ticket, kind of like what we saw in some other legacy games where like, you might have a card that has three bars of scratch-off, and it's like, okay, pick one and scratch it off. And normally you think, okay, just grab a penny. This comes with a claw, which leads me to believe that that's going to be happening a lot. Oh, am I amped up for that? 
Man, I look at that and like, should there be a warning that they're packing this game with a weapon? I mean, this could do some damage to somebody. I have an idea, Scott. We tried last year. We were going to be different. We started our ongoing adventures segment. Uh, and we did, what, Jaws of the Lion? We yes, did, we yes. Jaws of the Lion. And the concept was, well, all these podcasts are like, well, we, we can't just can't do a campaign game because we can't revisit. We don't have the time. And we were like, we're going to be different. We're going to be different. Yeah. And we weren't. We weren't <laughs> different. <laughs> We made it like seven or eight, and I feel like we did okay, yes. but we didn't actually complete our Jaws of the Lion campaign. Turns out it actually is very hard to play <sighs> yes, a it is. lot of things, especially <laughs> revisiting one. Uh, we probably had that out ten times, seven or eight oh, missions. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking, I already backed this. You, me, Chrissy, Ryan, the four of us. Yeah, Ryan's like 30-something, and he's like a five-year-old when it comes to dinosaurs. I could see us doing this like once or twice a month, let it mm. marinate, go over six months, make that the ongoing adventure. Oh, I can't wait to get this to the table. Hey, I'm in. I'm definitely in. X, well, you're almost in. All right. <laughs> you owe me 30 bucks. Okay. <laughs> it's, I got you. It's not cheap. So I'm like, well, I got I to gotta charge Scott and Ryan because I can't afford that. Not a problem. Ryan's not going to pay me. There's no chance. <laughs> Running low on supplies during your adventures? Don't want to shell out too much coin to gear up? Level Up's got your back. We've teamed up with Tabletop Tycoon to get listeners of the show 10% off a couple of the biggest titles they carry. First up, Nemo's War. You've heard our thoughts on this one. A grand strategy game jam-packed with meaty decisions. And the theme here, oh, I tell you what, it tells a story every time you play. Plus, Everdell, an early review here at Level Up and a personal favorite for both of us. If you don't have it, you've got to get in on it. Look, not many games get multiple expansions after they release. Only the best. And Everdell, it's one of them. The perk, just for you, is 10% off Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition just by using promo code LEVELUP2022. You can visit their website at tabletoptycoon.com or click the link on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Add any of these gems to your cart, that's Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition, and use promo code LEVELUP2022, all caps, no spaces, for 10% off. Get these games on the table and level up. What am I seeing you've got on the list here? What is this Widget Ridge? Yes, Widget Ridge. Now, this is a little deck-building card game. It's designed by Ian Teller and was published by Furious Tree Games. I picked this up at PAX Unplugged back in December. Widget Ridge is a deck-building race game, if you will. You're, mm -hmm. you're building your deck, trying to build these different inventions or contraptions that you have. Now, contraptions are great things like a foot-powered cargo rocket with a parachute. <laughs> or one of my favorite, a wind-up battle corset with an antenna. There's Wait a minute, is, is that the actual card or is that the combination of a few cards That's to create something like that? That's the combination of three different cards. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, you it's zany. I like you're it. In it. You're a tinkerer, so you're building these things. Or you have a foot-powered Velocitron with a place <laughs> to store your widget. So... Each card has a special ability at the bottom of it. So this would be just something simple like draw an extra card or you get extra gold or you get extra spark. And I'll go into spark here in a little bit. Each invention can be made up of three cards. Each card right. has a special ability at the bottom. 
Now the area of the card at the bottom is split into two parts. The top part is for when you play the card. So you can play a card and it says here, draw a card, then discard another card. Or it might be gain two gold or two spark. And I'll cover spark here in a minute. Mm -hmm. As you build along, you can build it up and it's made of three parts. There is a part that is an augment. So that is your adjective, if you will, of what the invention will do. Then you have accessory at the end of saying, this is the extra little tidbit you get with your main thing. The and suffix. then you have a practical device in the middle or a whimsical mm -hmm. device. So on each one of the cards on the practical augment part, there are symbols on the right-hand side of the card. Okay. On the accessory, there are symbols on the left side of the card. And on the device, there are symbols on both sides. A generator, it could be a flywheel, it could be a beaker. Now, you can't build up a wind-up cargo rocket. I mean, that's just silly. That'd I mean, come on, seriously. Physics and all that. But <laughs> what you can do is you can build a foot-powered Velocitron or even a foot-powered battle corset because they have the generator symbol on the different sides so they match up. So you can match those up. So you have to match up at least one symbol on each one of the cards. There are three different symbols that you can get on those. Okay. So as you do that, whenever you build them, you play the card, you play that top half. Once you complete three different cards there and build the entire thing, you look at the bottom and there's a full construct. So you read that off like a whole sentence where it's, you may discard a card. <laughs> if you do, your opponents discard a card. Or you may put a card from your discard pile into your hand. So it's all one big, big event that can happen once you complete the entire device. In order to win this game, you need to get 100 spark. Some mm -hmm. of them ask you to get 120 spark. So each one of these things here will give you so much spark. They have a really unique way of keeping track of that with these little cards that you have on the side that help you keep track of how many points you have. First person to 100 points will win the game then. So the game lasts eh, about 20 minutes, and it's interesting because it's only for one to two players. Yeah, So I see that. you can play either two players, or they have a very interesting solo one where you're playing against, I forget what his name is, Lord Compton or something like that. You're playing against him, and he has a stampede of steampunk bison running through the town. So you have to <laughs> defeat them before they destroy everything. It was just, uh, I walked past it. I looked at it. It was rather interesting. Grabbed it on a whim. Well, actually, they, they gave me a copy of it to give it a try and talk about it. Oh, is that Sorry, right? Sorry, it's taking me so much time here to get to it, but it's really a fun little game. It's just different enough to stand out, but it's mm -hmm. same enough that you can learn the rules rather quickly and get into playing this right away. And it's just fun. Like I said, I mean, you can mix up any sort of things where, let's see, what's another one here? A foot-powered Velocitron with an antenna. I mean, it's all sorts of silly things you can build. And you look at it sometimes and you're like, wow, they were drinking whenever they came up with these ideas for these inventions, I think. The Level Up Board Game Podcast does not condone irresponsible consumption of alcohol. Well, I'm, I, <laughs> hey, I'm saying this was responsible consumption because they came up with some funny stuff. 
Scott, I'm checking this one out on BGG as you're talking, and it looks like this is a little rare, a little harder to come by. One that Josh might have wanted for his lost loot. It's ranked way down there, just on account of it not being super popular yet. Not not a lot of publicity for it. This is put out by Furious Tree Games. You can get a copy at their website, FuriousTreeGames.com. And dude, it's 20 bucks for the starter set. That sounds like a lot of game for the price. It really is. You get a lot of cards in it, a lot of options. You get three different scenarios that you can play with someone else, and you do get the solo scenario as well. And it's a they got all kinds of expansions available too, like little extra packs. Yes, yes, yes. Looking into definitely getting a couple of those then in the near future. I clicked on Ian Taylor, the designer. I wanted to find out a little bit more about this guy. He's the founder and creative director of Furious Tree Games. This is the only game that they've put out so far, but it does have former rules manager for WWE Raw Deal. That game from like 2000. Oh, wait, you love that. Yes. (laughs) That was like, I was really into wrestling in the, in like the, what is it? The Attitude Era. That was in, in the Attitude Era. I was in it for like a year and a half. Mike would come over and we'd watch wrestling twice a week. (laughs) Uh, And that that fell, fell by the wayside, but we got the card game and it's actually really, really good. But the most important thing that stands out about Ian Taylor as a designer is that at the end of his description, it says, handsome Australian man. Kudos, Ian, (laughs) for, for being awesome. Play to your strengths there, Ian. Play to your strengths. Brave adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP, L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. Patrick, I see here that you got a chance to play this game that has a, a very... Uh, nostalgic 8-bit feel. Tell me about Overboss. This one intrigues me. Overboss, a boss monster adventure. This is a 2021 game from Aaron Mesburn and Kevin Russ, published by Brotherwise Games. Scott, some of the most popular bosses that we know of in in that era. We got what? King Koopa or Bowser. Mm -hmm. I think he was uh, King King Koopa initially, right? On regular Nintendo? I think so, yes. So you got your Dr. Wily, Dr. Robotnik. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm tinkering around and I looked up, I tried to find what I could see, what people collectively agree are the top 10 most difficult bosses on regular Nintendo. You ready? Oh, oh, all right. All right. All right. There's a notoriously terrible game, Friday the 13th. And apparently oh. Jason Voorhees is really, really hard. I never made it to Jason. Scott, this game, if if you look at your overworld map, it looks like, okay, I need to move to the right to get to that location. Mm-hmm. And then you exit the map and you're on literally just a 2D path. And if you walk to the right and it goes to the next screen, you open your map, you've gone left. Like it makes no sense. The game was hard <laughs> just on the fact that it wasn't intuitive at all. But apparently the last boss, Jason Voorhees, is a toughie. Okay. Number nine, Machine Gun Willie from Double Dragon, original Double Dragon. Oh. I love it. The Alien Computer from Fester's Quest, another notoriously terrible game. I don't this- even know that one. You know what? I, I love me some old angry video game nerd. He was really popular like 10 years ago. He still puts out content on YouTube, but it's mm-hmm. kind of like it's 
kind of run its course, I think. And yeah. and that's evidenced through the download numbers. But uh, he loves ripping on Fester's Quest whenever he has a chance to because <laughs> it's awful. Number seven, Needleman from Mega Man 3. You remember how oh, okay. you get to pick one of those eight bosses in, in, the, in the picture and you oh, take, yes, take yes. on their level? Needleman was one of them. Shadow Link from Legend of Zelda 2, the side-scrolling Legend of Zelda. One Never of my got into Zelda. What? Nope, nope. One of my favorites from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Technodrome. Oh, yes. That yes, was a yes. hard, hard game. Number four, the Yellow Devil from Mega Man. Mm. Number three, Jaco or Jacquio from Ninja Gaiden. That's one that I, I was never big into Ninja Gaiden, but uh, it's okay. a tough boss. There, hopefully, listeners are going, Oh, I remember this. That, that idiot needs to play this game. Dracula from Castlevania 3. Very mm. difficult. And the number one, which I don't know if this is the toughest, but he did a random pattern Mike Tyson from Mike Tyson's oh. Punch Out. <laughs> There you go. That's our one top ten that we'll ever do. <laughs> All right. All right. Back In to Overboss. Over yeah. Players take on the role of boss monsters emerging from their lairs to conquer the overworld. Now, those familiar with Boss Monster know that it has like a pixelated 8-bit art style reminiscent of what you might see in these old school games like Legend of Zelda, for example. And we see that art style continuing here. The game has character. This game has a simple variant, which removes asymmetric powers, and it uses a slightly smaller board, but we're going to talk advanced for which an adventure of the Level Up Board Game podcast, that's probably what you would expect of a base game. The easy version of this is probably best for learning the rules. So at the start of play, each player is going to get a board with a 4x4 grid and a boss monster card that gives them some form of a player power. The bosses that you select are pretty neatly inspired by nostalgic video games. So you got a Donkey Kong clone. You've got a Bowser. You've got Krang. Like he's clearly meant to be Krang amongst the 10 that come in the box. Mm-hmm. The insert has little spaces for each of the various terrain types of which there are 10 tiles for each terrain. So if you're playing with forests in your game, it's really easy to grab the 10 forest tiles and the associated tokens oh, okay. for the forest. This is actually pretty important because at the start of play, you're going to pick a number of terrain and use them. You're going to take out all the tiles, shuffle them all together. They have the same back, so you can't tell which one's which. You're going to take all of the associated tokens from those terrains and put them into an opaque bag from which you're going to be drawing them. Now, the gameplay is really easy. You have a market Mm -hmm. of four tiles in the middle of the table. You draw four random tokens from the bag and you put them next to each one. On a turn, you take a terrain tile. And you take the associated token and you put them on your board. Obviously, as you might expect, various terrains score in different ways. Forests, for example, they score more points exponentially based on how many you have. Cave tiles, on the other hand, they want to be next to mountains, etc., etc. Now, the monster tokens that are going to be placed basically just want to be in rows or columns of the same type. Pretty easy. Okay. Play is going to end after each player has filled out their 4x4 grid. You tally up the points, and the high score is the bossiest bosses boss monster and wins the game. <laughs> it doesn't sound too complex. I mean, it definitely plays on the nostalgia feel, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Now, how long does it take to play a game of this? Oh, it's pretty quick. Mike and I hammered one out in about 30 minutes. That's not too bad. So it gives you a chance to go back and try some other thing then as well, too. Oh, yeah, you, uh, yeah. Go through that again. Now, what were your thoughts on the game? I mean, I kind of get the feel of what I think about it. What do you think about it? 
Well, first and foremost, it reminded me of a game that recently cracked the top 100, actually. It reminded me of Cascadia, which while I enjoyed, I made it a point to point out on the show that I didn't love it like everyone else. I mean, it was all the rage. It did just crack the top 100, which we'll get to that update. You're not going to avoid it. (laughs) I liked Cascadia. I just didn't see it as super amazing. Boss Monsters gameplay is quite similar. It's a tile-selecting game with minimal player action, which for some gamers, that's going to be a good thing. I love the theme and the art direction here, but man, it really doesn't come through in the gameplay. It feels more like you're trying to suss out which puzzle piece would go best where. And for that matter, it was kind of frustrating having to regularly check the sheet to remind myself of what a cave does versus what Mm. a magic circle does versus what a forest does. Obviously, if this is going to make it to your table a couple times a week, that problem is going to go away pretty quickly as you start to memorize them. But, you know, the the few plays that we did, we were switching up the tiles and it felt like literally half the game was spent figuring out what each tile did. Final scoring, you get a score pad with a chart on it. So you go down and you mark off all your points. And I'm telling you, it's a little bit of a process. No big deal. But I didn't feel like the gameplay translated into the scoring. Like it was a point salad where it was kind of disjointed, if that makes any sense at all. I kind of get the idea that you go through a lot of motions in order to get a high score, but it just doesn't feel like it all goes together. It's like you could tack Mm -hmm. any theme on it just to get the same outcome. No, absolutely. Being that you like the 8-bit thing and everything, is this game a keeper for you, though? It is not. It got moved to the cell pile, and I think it sold already. I wish the mm. theme took more of a center stage, and I still don't know where the like the adventure – it's called a boss monster adventure in quotes. I don't right. know where the adventure is here. I liked it. I would happily grab a chair when someone wants to play it, but eh, it's just not one that I'm going to be amped up to show off at game day. You know, I, I'm not going to be the one that's introducing it to the table. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, well, hey – Some are winners, some are losers, unfortunately. And, uh, I mean, that's why we have so many choices out there right now. Speaking of so many choices, I'm stopping that little son of a... Don't you dare play that noise. Oh, God. Okay, 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 okay. I'm going to have words with that little trumpeter. You can't avoid... The top 100 trumpet. Scott, we've got one prime mover, and that is Arc Nova. It's up to 52. Holy cow. Yeah, tell me about it. Clank. That's all I've been seeing lately. It's just Ark Nova (laughs) everywhere. Yeah, it's still number one or number two in the hotness for almost three months running. That's absurd. Good old Clank. The original Clank, a deck-building adventure game, is down two spots to number 70. We've got a debut in the top 100, Cascadia. And when something enters the top 100, something's got to leave. In this case, it was Decrypto. New Mm -hmm. highest peaks. As we mentioned, Arc Nova, of course, at 51. Cascadia came into the top 100. It sits at 95. And the crew, Mission Deep Sea, is up to number 84. We still got to give that one a whirl. Yes, yes, we do. One birthday to celebrate today. It's a good one. It's a very happy birthday to a very popular game, Wingspan. Three years. Oh, oh. It, it seems like it ought to be longer than three years. It, it just seems like it's always been there. I think it will remain there for a long, <laughs> long, long time. Yes, it should. Scott, we've got a big review today. We're talking the Great Wall from Awakened Realms. You ready for this? Oh. Let's get into this thing here. 
Designed by Camille Ciesla, Robert Plezowitz, and Lucas Wodarczyk, and published by Awaken Realms in 2021, soon to be back on GameFound, The Great Wall is a worker placement resource management competitive game for one to four players. In The Great Wall, players control asymmetric ancient Chinese clans trying to defend against the Mongolian hordes and build the Great Wall. The game is competitive, and the victor will be the player who scores the most points, but there are some points where it might be beneficial to work together. Now, as always, we try to be brief in our walkthroughs, but strap yourselves in, adventures. There is quite a bit going on here. The game plays over a set number of rounds based on the number of players in the game. Typically, you're going to have four or five rounds, each consisting of four seasons. Let's start with the setup, though. The Great Wall has tremendous asymmetry, and it starts at setup. Each player is going to be dealt a pair of generals from a stack of about 13 who have wildly asymmetric powers. They keep one to use in the game. Then each player receives two advisor cards, keeping one for its ability. Here again, we have very asymmetric powers, and they come from a deck of 44. Players gather their starting pieces and resources, as well as their deck of five tactic cards, and the game begins. Spring and summer are skipped during the first turn, so I'm going to start with the fall season and work our way around. The fall season is where the bulk of gameplay actually takes place. See, this season begins with each player selecting a tactics card from their hand for use in the round. Tactics cards typically allow you to move a number of your workers throughout the 10 worker placement locations, but they also typically allow other players to get a minor version of the same ability. When everyone has selected a card, they're placed in a resolution row in order is determined by player order, and then they're resolved from left to right. As much as this season involves moving workers, let's briefly talk about the action spots. First, you've got four primary resources, each with their own worker placement spots. Some interesting plays introduced, though, in that a spot needs to be completely filled before it resolves. The space for acquiring wood, for example, has five worker slots. Let's say I place three workers there. I don't get to collect three wood until the space is completely filled with five workers, at which point everyone collects their wood and the workers are returned to their respective players. That's the same for all of these resource gathering spots. Other spaces include altering player order, acquiring new workers, recruiting troops to fight off hordes, recruiting new advisors for extra asymmetric power, and of course, building the Great Wall. Let's stop here for a moment and talk about the impending threat approaching the wall. The Mongol force is represented by large tarot cards, which will advance down three columns towards your defenses. Each card has an attack power, which must be met or exceeded in wall defense, and each card has a number of slots where players can place recruited soldiers and damage dealt to score benefits. If all of these slots are ever filled with damage and or soldiers, the invader card is destroyed, and whoever dealt the most damage gets to keep it for endgame scoring. Building the wall is as simple as allocating a worker to the build space and spending the appropriate amount of resources to construct a wall section. What's interesting, though, is that you can use community resources. All right, let's backtrack to my three workers that collected wood. Any time a player collects a resource, they can opt to donate one of them to a common pool and score two points. It's actually a pretty decent conversion. Later, if someone wants to build a wall section that requires, say, 10 resources, and there's four resources in the common pool, well, they can use those. In this fashion, the player order and the timing become quite influential. The winter phase is where archers that have been recruited get to deal damage to invaders, and then you check and see if any invaders have breached a wall section. From turns two and on, the spring phase is essentially a maintenance phase where new cards are prepared and the advisor market is refreshed. Summer is quite a quick phase as well. During summer, players collect overseer income. 
Without getting into great detail, overseers provide residual income and they're acquired and upgraded when obtaining resources from those basic resource action spots. Now, I don't want to convolute things and teach the entire game, but there are a few key elements of the Great Wall that I want to point out. First, if a location is ever resolved and only one player had workers there, like that wood space where I had three workers and there are five slots, let's suppose that I filled it with all five of my workers, I'm going to take a shame token. Likewise, if there's a wall breach and you hadn't committed any defenses to that breaching horde card, you get shame for that too. Shame is basically a token worth minus five points in endgame scoring. There's a way to get rid of these tokens, and whether you avoid it altogether or handle it when acquired, that's a strategic decision for each player to make. Second, the game has player screens to hide your resources. In this way, you don't really know how likely someone else is to construct a wall section or what their capabilities might be. Finally, the end game occurs when either the time token has reached the end of the final round, or the walls have been completely built, or the pool of shame tokens is empty. At this point, scores are tallied, and the player with the highest score wins the game. Well, Awaken Realms created this massive thematic Euro game that introduces tons of asymmetry on an epic scale. But how did we feel about it? Was the Great Wall great? Let's get back to the adventure and see if our clan can hold off the invasion in the 8-bit breakdown of The Great Wall. The Great Wall already stood there during the Zhu Dynasty many years before the current turmoil. Back then, it was a simple series of walls and forts that protected the land from invading nomadic tribes. It has survived many wars and battles and was expanded, rebuilt, and repaired countless times. Much later, during the 10th and 11th centuries, the Northern Song Dynasty built the Great Wall sections located in what are now the provinces of Shangqi and Hebei to defend themselves from Jurchen Jin invasions. Despite their work, the wall failed, forcing them to retreat to the south. The mighty fortifications now belonged to their enemies. A hundred years later, Using the Great Wall raised by their predecessors, the Jin Dynasty tries to repel the Mongol invasion from the north, but the Song Dynasty, now named Southern Song, is still resentful toward the Jin. They ally with the Mongols to crush their old enemy. However, they did not predict the insatiable hunger of their allies, and now must face the Mongol horde themselves. Thank you, Patrick, for the walkthrough on the Great Wall. There's a lot going on in this there game There sure here. is. And there's only one way to dissect a game that's got a lot oh, going on. Oh, huh? yeah. We got to dissect it with 8-bits. Let's do an 8-bit breakdown of this game. So, first of all, we go with our art in components. Oh, the art is just gorgeous. I mean, yeah. Awakened Realms knocks it out of the park with their artwork. I mean, it just Every time. looks beautiful. The sections of the Great Wall look great. I love that you build them up as you go. Mm -hmm. So you're actually building the wall as you go along. The iconography is a little off trying to figure if it's one resource for each marker or one resource for every two. So it was a little confusing on that. There's a lot, a lot of iconography um, in this game. Yeah, because I think whenever we played it, you had to look it up on BGG there just to uh, <laughs> get some clarity on things. So uh, not a I'll huge problem, but still, it's a little bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. The enemy cards, gorgeous artwork on those things. But 
I think you could still have a great time with this game if they shaved it down, put it out for a $50 price point or something, and a little less production, you'd still have as much fun here. But, I mean, they they always push it all the way to the limit as to how much they can put into a game box. And I'll tell you what, they kind of did what you were mentioning. This is a game that came with a Meeples version, and it came with a Miniatures version, and they had the Awaken Realms Sundrop Miniatures version. We were playing with mm. the Meeples version, so believe it or not, we had the watered-down version of the game, and was still absolutely <sighs> stunning. Yes. I think everything here is top-notch, and like you said, it's Awaken Realms. You know that your components are going to be good. You get a ton of cards, resources, damage markers, 3D cardboard wall sections. It's all sprawled out over that beautiful board. If there's one gripe, <laughs> if there's one true, well, I have a couple gripes. My biggest gripe, uh, Nikki let me borrow this one. It was unpunched. She bought it. So I assembled everything, got the whole game set up. I was like, I am going to learn this. My biggest component gripe is you cannot get it back in the box. With the assembled uh, wall, like I'm not going to take apart the wall sections every time I play. I'm going right. to leave them assembled. You slide that lid on and it goes about one third the way down. Oh, that geez. is it. You'd mentioned iconography too. There is a ton in this game oh, and it's yeah. not spelled out very well in the rule book, which we'll get to. Like, okay, the wooden resource symbol, it's a piece of wood. The overseer mm. for wood is the same symbol with a shaded background. Not a big deal and all, but it's tiny. These symbols are tiny, so you really yeah. got to look. And there are 30, 30 symbols in this game. Oh. Also, yeah. like when I say they're not intuitive, one of them, it's two plus the advisor symbol plus a horse head. Now, a horse head is victory points. So I read this as either uh, for every two advisors, you get a point. Two mm -hmm. advisor symbol, point, right? Makes nope. sense. It's gained two points for each advisor. So it, it's not necessarily intuitive either. All in all, though, the game for art and components for me, it's top notch. Yeah, nine out of 10, you know, lose one point for the box not fitting. Yeah, we're nitpicking here. Yes, yes. How about bit number two, Scott? Theme and immersion. Tell me, what'd you think? I didn't read the rules, didn't read the book. I just jumped in with your more than capable hands to show me how to play this game. That being said... My biggest problem with this game is that I just kept going back to that Matt Damon movie. <laughs> I kept going back that we're building a great wall to keep the giant lizards out of China. I never once truly felt like I was part of a historical battle of building up the great wall to protect China and everything. Okay. I will wholeheartedly put on me. I mean, that's not what everyone's going to have that same experience. Whenever you were playing this, yes, you got to keep out, what were they, the Mongols? The Mongols, yeah. Yes. So you're trying to keep them out of China. You get the feeling for that, but like you said, there's so many things going on in order to fight them off and keep them out that I never really felt like I'm in this, I'm building the wall and I'm keeping the Mongols out. I never really felt that. I think that's a pretty valid opinion though, Scott, because there are so many icons, there are so many resources to track, there's enough things to have to manage in the game that whenever a game does that, it's really hard for its theme to convert into immersion. If you're playing something simple like One Night Ultimate Werewolf, it's easy to get immersed because, right. well, there's basically no rules. You just start pointing fingers and, oh yeah, I felt <laughs> like I was there. 
whenever there's a lot of numbers going on and a lot of, okay, what do I want to do next? Some pre-planning, uh, some tactical decisions and long-term strategy that's tasking your brain in a way that makes it hard to allow yourself to get mm-hmm. immersed in the theme. I thought though that the theme was pretty well implemented. Theme and great walls that were tasked with holding off the invading forces. And this is going to be executed in the game by the construction of a wall, as well as needing to send some troops to it. And as the game progresses, the attacking hordes are going to gain more cards working their way towards the wall. So mechanically and visually, I thought it all made sense. While you're calculating your decisions, you'll oftentimes be doing so based on your personal economic capabilities and your bonuses from advisors. So while your decisions, like I said, might pull you in directions from other players, I think it all ties together pretty well. Hey, the game's photogenic too. Nothing makes you feel like you're in a defensive stand, quite like seeing those little archers on top of the wall with the the artwork on the cards approaching. I think the only thing for me that's holding back the immersion is, like we said, there's a bit of a learning process in those first couple games and even after that when you're trying to min max and trying to play competitively your brain is you're using the right side of your brain not the left yeah mm-hmm. let's talk bit number three complexity this is not an entry level game is it nope no it is not i didn't find it overly complex either though well I found it to be a complex game because you have a lot of moving parts in this. You are trying to put your advisors in certain places to get the resources you need in order to get the soldiers or the archers or the builders to build things in order to keep the Mongols out. So there are a lot of moving pieces going on in this. But as with many other games, you get familiar with it as you go along. So that makes Mm -hmm. it a little bit easier. That being said, sure, there were some questions as we went along, but it came easier and easier to play. So like you said, it gets to that point where it doesn't feel that complex. And that could be that you had the time to go through the rule book, which we'll go through here in a minute, Mm -hmm. and had that little bit of extra time than I did. But the amount of complexity felt right for what you were trying to do. This was, like you said, this is not an entry-level game by any stretch of the imagination. So you were expecting more of a challenge and you definitely got it in this box. So where does some of that challenge come from? Some of the complexity here. First of all, the action selection. The the actions are going to be performed based on the cards that players have selected from their hands. So you'll remember, if there's four of us sitting around, we each get to pick one of those cards and push it over to that area where they're going to be resolved from. Like I might have a card Mm -hmm. that gets a bonus for each attack that other players have placed. That's going to give you a little bit of like a next level concept of timing in the action card play in the game. I thought that was neat. Not necessarily well executed it wasn't as it wasn't as prominent as i thought it was going to be like oh there's going to be a ton of gameplay around when i play which card no it it felt a little bit tacked on but i liked it i thought that was a really cool way of going about having the actions resolve the advisor cards man those things can be influential and there's a mega stack of them you're not going to see all of them in a playthrough and each player is going to likely end the game with like three or four. So you have all kinds of variability there. And I mention it here because they're acquired from a market of four face-up advisors. And there's text on every one of them. 
So you've got to track your own active advisors. You've got to weigh your options based on what other people have. And you've got to keep an eye on that market. And when somebody buys one, you remember the market shifts. So everybody's mm-hmm. got to stand up, read that next. These are all things that you've got to record to memory and kind of keep in your brain in order to continue to play the game well. That's the kind of meatiness that I like in a game. But that does mean it's going to be a little bit more complex than I think a lot of folks would prefer. Right. The rule book. What was the rule book like? I was pleasantly surprised to find the rule book for the Great Wall was not massive. Mm. But I learned why pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be more like a rule book that we found in Nemesis or Lords of Hellas, uh, some of the other Awakened Realms titles. But in this case, like you flip through that Nemesis book, they got all those pictures, examples. Oh, yes. This one is mostly text. Scott, it's like wall to wall text on big pages, too. It wasn't great. It wasn't. So yeah. bad because I was able to teach myself how to play the game with it. But I think that the issue with the rule book is that inevitably edge cases were arising. You said, oh, you had to check on BGG. That's because these what if scenarios are coming up and it's right. really hard to find it in their rule book. Things are in the middle of a paragraph. You know what I mean? It's just not as uh, organized as we've come to expect. As far as Awaken Realms rule books go, this one was the – I don't want to say the – the most disappointing because other ones weren't. This is the worst one, though, of all the Awakened Realms rule books that I've looked into. Mm-hmm. Just going to BGG and checking under the forums for the Great Wall when narrowing the thread count down to just rules and questions, simply topics about rules. Right. There's already, already well over 300 topics. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's a lot. And that reflects the rule book here. That said – you did the – I'm going to have you do the learning curve here. I, I was teaching it. Now, we, we mm-hmm. understand I'm one of the best board game teachers ever. So Oh, definitely. Without you're going to have to set that aside and pretend like you weren't learning from, from the maester. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, tell me, what did you think about uh, the learning curve? It felt like I was going through the rule book with you because in many cases we kind of were yeah. whenever those type of things came up where, <laughs> oh, I don't know what happens when that happens. We were kind of going through and exploring and investigating the things as we played. So in a way, it made it a little bit more rewarding being able to share that time there going through it Mm -hmm. and having those things open up like oh i see now and oh oh this is what this is here and i think that it really turns into this needs to be a cooperative learning experience instead of really just one person reading it i mean as you go the learning of it it's not that difficult So it's not that bad of a game to learn to play. You need to get an advisor to do this, and you need resources to do this, and you need archers to do this, and so on and so forth. So it all functions from a worker placement uh, mechanism. Like that's the primary mechanism at play here. For those that understand that, I think that they're going to find it a little easier to to get into. I do not want to scare people off of this game, saying, "Oh, it's so tough to learn," because. It's tough to learn it, but it's not tough to learn, if that makes sense. It's hard to connect the dots and see where the the strategy, like what's the best tactical decision. In your first play, you have no idea. I'm just going to play one of these cards and and let things shake out and see what happens. Because there are so many variables inserted into that base worker placement mechanism 
I, I think it can make it very tricky. It, it is different from other work placement games in that way. Yeah, it goes back to talking about Earth. Whenever we played Earth and went through it and going through their rule book, they actually say whenever you're playing that first game, do not try and figure out the best way to win this game. Just go in, grab something and go. You need to just learn to play the game and then let the strategies unfold before you as you play it and as you get better at it. Speaking of strategies, let's move to bit number five. Where's the meat? Those times when you're tasking your neurons to put the perfect plan together and see it through. How do you go about executing your strategy? That adventures is where you'll find a game's meat. Oh, that sounds creepy. <laughs> in Great Wall, though, it's found in a lot of places. It's almost like a series of mini games. We've got worker placement. But you don't mm -hmm. want shame tokens. You don't want to be the only person that is at the wood location filling it up with all your workers. So you got to avoid shame. You're recruiting heroes to go out there and attack enemy cards at the right time and for the right rewards. Hiring overseers, those little guys that are going to give you uh, economic income. Boy, that means a lot on turn one and not as much on turn five. So weighing when to do that, that's important. Suiting your play to pay off on the score tracker by considering what advisors you have. But there's a lot of gameplay in those advisors. Let's start here. The mm -hmm. game is asymmetric as hell. Starting with that general and starting advisor and then seeing what becomes available, you truly get to shape the direction of your play. We played this one time and oh, I can't remember Melissa. I'm just going to say Melissa. I can't remember her husband's name. Sorry if you're listening. We're going <laughs> to pretend like it was Melissa. She had a general that was like, okay, every time you have an archer deal of damage, you get a point. And then her first advisor is like, you get to hire archers for cheaper. And then she picked up an advisor from the market that was like, every time you recruit an archer, you gain points. So she just mm -hmm. became, she became, I don't know what you'd call that, the, the artillery, the archer leader. There's probably a word for that, but that's what she was. And she was just, oh, exploiting that. And that's a totally, totally different game than anybody else was playing at the table. She didn't have to exploit it. She could have played it as, okay, this is going to be a little side benefit, and otherwise I'm going to try and play off Overseers and, and build up an economic engine. But that's the way that she took it. So much meat in this game. What do you think, Scott? Now, through the plays that you did, where did you find that you were most taxed? Well, this might seem like a bit of a cop-out, but the whole game itself, because you have so many different paths that you can take, mm -hmm. and that's what makes this game so great. Like you said, you start with that general. All right, well, I'm going to do this. But then you're approached with these advisors. Well, then if I go this way, it gives me this. Go that way. It's a whole different army. And there's so much meat in this game, you can't really narrow it down to... This here was the whole part of the game that was just, oh, that was the part of the game that really stood out to me. Yeah, and it's constantly because shifting. Exactly. You never have a time where it's like you start going, like if uh, playing Seven Wonders and you're doing all the monuments in the buildings and you know that's the meat of the game, getting that one path and going up there and, and really getting a hold of everything. This one here, you're like, yes, I got a building. But those archers over there are going to be really helpful. Let's go over to the archers. Yeah, yeah, we're going to uh -huh. the archers on the meeting. Oh, but wait, there is spearmen. Oh, that oh, it's spearmen. That's what it is. Yeah, the spear. And yeah, everything changes so often in this game. There's really no this. This is like a tapas restaurant. <laughs> 
where you go in and you get a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and mm-hmm. it makes a whole meal. So that's what it is. Okay, yes, it's early in the morning. I'm still kind of hungry. You know what? I even told players when teaching them that I think you can probably get away with ignoring a couple of the aspects of the game entirely and still walk away with a win. You oh, can certainly. win without building a wall section. Like you mm-hmm. as an individual player, you don't have to build any wall sections, you know, and it will still get built. You can take on shame and still win. You can forego overseers as long as you make up for it in other areas. Maybe the meat in the Great Wall is navigating the ever-changing directions that you're pulled and, and what might be the most tactical uh, – the best tactical decision weighed against your strategic plan overall and being able to pivot when necessary, I think is where the meat of the mm-hmm. great wall lies. Not true. That's a good point there. We have the replayability and the variability. I think just from our talk here, we kind of give it away that yes, there's a lot of replayability. Yes. There's a huge amount of variability in oh, this game. Yeah. I want to start with variability here, Scott, because it's tremendous. Okay. Every player gets a leader card. And these aren't simple things like, I start with a wood, Scott starts with a coin. No, these are things like, every time you recruit, it's cheaper, or your archers score double, or you get to start with two extra workers. They're things that are going to shape the way that you're going to play the game. And to ignore your leader ability is probably the expense of competing in your play. Then everybody gets two advisors, and they get to pick one to start the game with. Here again, these aren't tacky abilities. These are game shapers, and they come from a deck of like 40 advisors. So you're going to see different ones and have different ones available. Everyone starts with and continues to develop asymmetric powers that will absolutely change the way you play this time compared with last time and next time. So does that make this game replayable? I think it's always going to follow a similar arc. That is, of course, the invasion threat is light to begin the game, and it's going to ramp up. We saw Mm -hmm. that in our plays. This means that early on is always going to be your chance to focus on building up your economy, hiring your advisors, employing new works. You know, the things that you can get away with now because the need for soldiers and wall sections is minimal. Later in the game, around four or five, you're upgrading overseers. It's probably not because of the economic boost because it won't pay off. You might still want to upgrade because you score some points for it. But if you upgrade an overseer on turn one, that's four rounds that it's going to give you a resource. You do it on turn five, it's never going to actually give you Mm -hmm. a resource. I find myself listening to reviews on other shows and I reflect on our own. And oftentimes when a game has variability, the reviewer tends to equate that with replayability. Like, oh, you have 180 bird cards, so it's different every time. Ah! I want to try to avoid calling the Great Wall replayable because of the many, many variables. I think Great Wall is replayable not because of those, but rather because of how profound the variables actually are. Simply just going off that starting leader and advisor, you're going to get a different game every time. Yeah, I I agree with what you say completely on that in that – Yes, it's replayable, but you are going to be doing the same thing each game. Like the arc is always going to be there. Yes, yes. So you have to fight off the Mongols. You have to do this and whatever. But the way that you get there, the variability is huge Mm. because pretty much every card is broken in a way. Kind of, yeah. But you need to keep an eye on it so that you take advantage of that. That's the big thing there with the variables that are inserted into the game each and every time you play it. You might not get a chance to pay 
less for each advisor or each worker, however you want to do it. So there's so many different things that you can do, so many variables that make it a different game, but it's not going to be one of those things where it's a different game every time you replay it. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Scott, let's move to bit number seven, downsides. We already mentioned the iconography. Uh, It's plentiful, but not necessarily intuitive. I think the designers wanted the card play. Whenever you're selecting the action card that you want to play per round, I think that they were shooting for like a clever guessing game filled with aha moments. But Mm. in execution, (laughs) I, I mentioned this earlier, it felt a little bit underwhelming. It's just really hard to deduce what cards other people might choose when they have several options that would be just fine. Uh, there's rarely a time where it's like, I know he's going to play that card because he has everything mm. lined up. Nah, uh, most situations, almost all cards have value. We found a couple times it's like, okay, I'm pretty sure they're going to play their attack card to move troops to the wall because they've been storing right. up troops. And maybe someone could take advantage of that. But aside from that, it wasn't as clever as I was hoping. There isn't much you can do to slow down somebody who's got their engines up and running, is there? No, no, definitely. I mean, once that's going, it's one of those things where you're just thinking, okay, how am I going to play to be the first loser? <laughs> uh, you want to come in at least second then because you see them running away with it. And that that's pretty much about it. My downsides with it is just we did kind of complain about the number of icons and how they're described on the board and everything like that that aren't exactly clear. And again, the rulebook is pretty rough. You're probably going to be better off learning this game from someone who already knows it. And there's going to be edge cases where you might have to pursue BGG to get an Mm -hmm. answer. But I feel like we're kind of giving these warnings because we don't want to sound overjoyed with it. Bit number eight, was it fun? And who's it for? Scott, I love this game. It's lengthy, but I think being a set number of rounds ensures that it doesn't get tiresome for us. And I love trying to tie together each of the variables that I'm presented with. I thought this was fantastic. Yeah, this is one that I would definitely play again. I mean, there's no question that I would definitely play it again. Once you get to playing it and you start realizing the synergy that builds up amongst the cards... That's whenever this game really becomes rewarding Mm -hmm. because then you see where things are going. You get more efficient with your moves and you know exactly where to go and you play with other people that are like that. It makes it for a great experience. And I'll tell you what, this is a game that, you know, I always say I want it. I want my games to make me feel clever and I want them to make me feel powerful. I want those two moments, you know, make me feel like I'm doing something smart and then make me feel like I'm doing something special, right? Oh boy, do you get that. And you get it as a result of your own decisions. I think the interaction within the worker placement spots makes turn order and the allocation of your workers a factor in making your decisions and the collective need to work together while still trying to win the game for yourself. I think it made for an exceptional experience, but we liked it. Who's going to like it? Scott, who's this game for? Who's this game for? This is definitely for uh, an experienced gamer. And I don't mean that in that it's tough to learn what you need to do. It's tough to learn all the options that you have. Mm -hmm. That's where it gets difficult because someone just coming into this game, new to gaming and everything, this could really overwhelm them and just push them completely off of playing games forever. That being said, 
you have an experienced group of gamers that are into these kind of things that share kind of like a hive mind of games you like, mm-hmm. you get this game out, you all love this game. Oh my God, you are going to have a tremendous, Could be a tremendous staple. time playing this. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Because it really does work your brain in different ways and gives you so many different things. And like you said, the ability of the feeling clever Whenever you get that card out and you play it right at the right time and you hear the other people that are as skilled as you are looking at it and go, oh, my God, that is such a great feeling there because you figure, I just did something really cool, and that's awesome. And whenever you're done and you see the wall being built, even if it's not completely built, it really gives you a great feel looking at it and seeing, yeah, we just played this. So definitely for more experienced players, not for the difficulty of play, but for the difficulty of decisions that can be made in this. Oh, yeah. Scott, this is a Euro game that has soul. Oh, man, this is a Euro game on steroids. It has all the depth and gameplay that you might expect from an involved Euro game, but it takes steps to ensure that the theme does come through a bit. Now, we've seen this in games like Scythe. We've seen it in Lords of Waterdeep or even um, Carson City. Those are some games that I think if they hit the right notes with your group, Great Wall is going to rock their worlds. I'm telling you what, Scott, I watched this game from the moment that it was on Kickstarter, and I am so happy to finally have had the chance to get it to the table in front of a few different groups, lived up to expectations with each. This game is a flagship game for game night, and I'm sure that it will be that again quite regularly for me. I love the Great Wall. There's an awful lot of fog here and some sparkles going in the air. It feels like we're going back in time. I've got on my leather outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you're going to a different party than I am. But yes, we have a lot of sparkles. I assume that sparkles was in reference to uh, Rocky Horror. No, I just like saying sparkles. Okay, got it. On an uninhabited island in uncharted seas, explorers have found traces of a great civilization. Now you will lead an expedition to explore the island, find lost artifacts, and face fearsome guardians, all in a quest to learn the island's secrets. One year ago, we had the pleasure of being joined by Martin Gonzalez to talk about all sorts of games, including his specialty, solo gaming. And back in that episode, our feature review was all the rage at the time and basically still is. Recently cracking the top 50 and currently sitting at number 32, Lost Ruins of Arnak. Scott, do you see a future game day where you're bringing this out on the table? I would definitely like to get back into playing this again. I tried to play it on BGA and it had been enough time in between playing it. I hadn't watched a video to refresh the memories and it just kind of like fell flat for me at that point in time. Mm -hmm. But this is another one similar to Great Wall where you have a lot of decisions to make. Do you want to build onto your deck? Do you want to get some of your advisors or your interns, whatever they are, to go out and do different things for you? Do you want to explore this cave that looks like there could be something in it? There's a lot of things you can do in it, but this one makes it a little more fun. It's not as... 
oh my God, we're going to get killed if we don't keep off the Mongols or anything like that. It's just like one of those things you want to go through and you want to adventure. You want to explore things. So this is definitely one I would like to get back and play it again. It's never really left the game hive mind or anything. It's still super, super popular. Well, it just had the and expansion. I- Exactly. And I would love to get back and play this one again. I really, really would. Well, I'll tell you what, I've been using this as my go-to game for like, okay, Melissa doesn't do BGA. Nikki has never Mm -hmm. done BGA. Jimmy barely does BGA. I was like, okay, get on BGA. I'm going to show you guys how to play. And we would do Arnak. That would be the game of, okay, I'm going to show you how to play Arnak. You'll get familiar with BGA and you'll learn how to play Arnak. I don't think I've played this with anyone that's was like, eh. You know, kind of lukewarm on it. Every, right. Everyone seems to like it. There's something about squeezing that extra little bit of the extra mileage out of your empty tank, as this game seems to challenge <laughs> you to do, that I really like. And, and I can't wait to get it back to the table, as I'm sure it will. This is one that I think Level Up is putting the uh, our stamp, our Wilford badge. We don't have a name oh, for yeah. anything. We recommend it, right? Yes, okay. yes, yes. I, I- I think, yeah, I like this. The Wilford Badge of Approval. Hi, guys. I'm Andrew Davidson with AsPromyAbility.com. If you consider yourself a new or experienced board gamer, if you like reading and watching board game content, then As Per My Ability may be something to keep on your radar. We publish articles and videos every week ranging from board game reviews to the more philosophical aspects of what it's like to be a gamer. If you want to keep us in your sights, please check us out on YouTube or at aspermyability.com. As an American, I am well-versed in the American Revolution. Well, as much as any American student growing up in the public school system learning about the foundation and birth of our great nation. But what never seemed to hit the chalkboard back in my day was information about a similar revolution not long after the American one and located just across the pond in France. Ah, yes, the French Revolution. To quote one of the most influential books ever written and set during the French Revolution, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Between Charles Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities and Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, a classic piece of literature turned into a musical, then a play, then a hit movie starring Liam Neeson, then a musical movie, then to a podcast dramatization, and back to a student abridged novel. Are you still with me? Good. There are plenty of opportunities to do a cannonball off the high dive into the pool of French Revolution-related historical fiction. Now, I don't profess to know a crap ton about the video game world. You know, what's hot, what's not, that type of thing. However, one game series I've kept loose tabs on is the incredibly popular Assassin's Creed games. Assassin's Creed Unity, which I've been dabbling in a bit here and there, allows players to walk around the streets of Paris during the French Revolution, jump, climb, and parkour all over historical buildings 
and interact with significant people of the era. The French Revolution lasted an entire decade, from 1789 to 1799. According to historians, the time period between September 1793 to July 1794 is commonly referred to as the Reign of Terror. Unfortunately, there are discrepancies in the body count for the rampant executions during the Reign of Terror. From my research, the general consensus among scholars is somewhere around 56,600 were executed. For those of you doing the math at home, that's an average of 1,286 people killed every week, week after week for 11 months. The situation in France got so out of hand that individuals who started the movement were eventually executed by their own following for not being extremist enough. Dang, and I thought I was served up a supreme lesson from the School of Hard Knocks the one time I got kicked out of my own screamo band. I'm still butthurt about that, and it happened like more than a decade ago. At least I got kicked out with all my body parts still intact. With all the executions, the French ushered to the front stage their latest asset and the principal symbol of the terror in the French Revolution, the guillotine. Invented by a French surgeon, Antoine Louis, and a German engineer, Tobias Schmidt, the guillotine was properly deemed a much more civil and humane method of execution, as pre-guillotine beheadings uh, typically took two, sometimes, sometimes three swings of the executioner's axe before the individual would never have to worry about that migraine problem that runs on their mother's side of the family. The guillotine attracted large crowds as it was deemed the official method of capital punishment in October of 1789. However, by the time of the reign of terror, the guillotine was slicing and severing around the clock. Similar contraptions were used in the past under a whole host of different names that I'm not going to go into here, but none of the designs worked as perfect as the guillotine. Despite receiving the prestigious honor as the official capital punishment method, almost losing out to death by firing squad, the death machine did not come without controversy. Many physicians debated back and forth over how humane and how painless the guillotine actually was. The issue of consciousness and awareness grew as the focal point of a moral and ethical discussion. One physician, Dr. Bo Ryu, noted in his journal how he witnessed firsthand a severed head still blink perform, quote, spasmic contractions on the other areas of the face, such as the cheeks and eyebrows, along with minor mouth movements, even six seconds after being severed, unquote. This drove the current medical community into extreme infighting over the moral and political duty the guillotine served during the French Revolution. The game guillotine, designed by Paul Peterson of Smash Up fame and produced by Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro, is a game all about the French Revolution and, as the game's title would evoke, the guillotine. First off, just like experiencing the incredibly popular death machine, guillotine is incredibly fast and simple. 
It's a straightforward card game that can be learned, taught, and played the first time you open the box. In Guillotine, players are spectators, if you will, working against each other while watching people stand in line awaiting their turn for the guillotine. To end your turn, the active player takes whomever is at the head of the line as they have been sliced and diced to the guillotine gods. These cards go into a score pile. Each round, 12 noble cards are lined up for the guillotine. The nobles are worth various points, with some being worth negative points. During your turn, you play action cards to change the order of the line so you can collect the best heads. Like, for example, Marie Antoinette gives the best points. But there are other historical characters, such as King Louis and Maximilian Robespierre, that are represented within the game. Now, the game lasts over three rounds, or days, as they're referred to in the game. And a full game typically takes players around 30 minutes to complete. The player with the most points in their score pile is declared the winner. To be honest, there's not a whole lot of rules and global game effects to keep in mind. You don't have to fret about end-of-round conditions or special actions that get triggered when something happens or special player abilities or anything like that. On your turn, you either play an action card or not, take your newly killed noble from the front of the line, and draw a card from the action deck. That's about it. The ruthless, headless, blood-filled beauty of Guillotine is in the action cards. Now, 9 out of 10 action cards allow players to manipulate the line. So while you're thinking to yourself, okay, that card will go to Scott at the end of his turn, and then the next will go to Patrick on his turn, which means I'm set up perfectly to collect a five-point noble. Yeah, while you're thinking that, somebody's playing an action card to gather up all the cards in line, shuffle them face down, and create the line again. Or maybe change the direction of the line so that the last are first and the first are last. Perhaps another player has bumped the five-point noble to the front of the line. Oh no, that means now you'll be stuck with a negative five-point jester. Guillotine is a game that keeps all players focused on the table. Even when it's not your turn, you can't help but get sucked into what other players are doing to the line. As the line of individuals is in constant flux, you better hope and pray you have a powerful action card to maximize your points. Early on in my gaming career, if that's what you want to call it, I dated a gal who introduced me to the game. We sat at a bar with friends playing guillotine over and over and over. Sadly, when our relationship was guillotined, pun intended, I picked up my own copy and, to be honest, it still hits the table every now and then as a filler game or a palate cleanser. You know what? There's really not much to dislike about guillotine. Unless if you're an epic war gamer, then this one is probably not for you. But as for me, I think this game will bring you and your friends, family, or game group Loads of entertainment as you call dibs and fight over collecting the best head. My name is Andrew Davidson. Thank you for stopping by my academy to level up. I hope I have given you something to think about. So much, Andrew. 
Guillotine is one of those games that I bought, like, whenever I first tried it and played it. And it was great. And it just kind of falls by the wayside. It gets lost for a while. But then you find it again, you play it again. It's like, wow, this is just a fun little thing. This is a game that really has a dark side of laughter. Mm -hmm. That you're laughing and joking about killing people during the French Revolution. But it's still so much fun that you're jockeying the position of all these different people and these different royals. And, of course, you got to love the piss boy. I mean, <laughs> just the idea that they put the piss boy in this Well, game, you don't want to kill him. You lose a point if you're the one I that know, takes him I know, but it's hysterical. <laughs> it, well, it is. Fun game, easily approachable. I, I think this is one that you can get out with just about anybody in a younger crowd, too, because you're basically just playing your cards to move nobles forward or backwards. And your turn. You take the one in the front of the line. Simple. And, man, it always, it always satisfies. This is definitely one that gets the in-law stamp of approval. Well, Archmage Andrew, thank you, as always, for making the show smarter. Hey, adventurers, this is the part when you listen to other shows where they ask you for your money. This is when they tell you they just couldn't make their content without the help of your wallet. At Level Up, we do this because we love gaming and we want to share our thoughts and we want to hear yours. So keep your money and use it to buy some games. We still love your support, though, and the best way to show it is to rate us with five stars in iTunes. We appreciate all the feedback we've had. The input from our listeners has been tremendous, and we can't thank you enough. Our one request is that if you're enjoying the show, the old games and the level back episodes, the adventures on the horizons, interviews with designers of upcoming Kickstarters, reviews, solo adventures, giveaways, the Academy Lost Loot, and more, please take three minutes of your time and give us that five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you. From the bottom of our hearts. And now, back to the adventure. Attention, adventurers. We here at the Level Up Board Game Podcast like to warn you every now and then when there could be possible spoilers. So, Patrick. Yes, sir. You reached the end of Clank Legacy. We did it. Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated. This is a 2019 game published by Direwolf Penny Arcade and Renegade Studios, designed by Andy Claudice and Paul Denon. It's a name you know. Mm-hmm. That I do. I mean, he has a lot of good things there. Uh, <clears throat> dude. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, dude. Clank Legacy is a good old-fashioned clank, but given the legacy treatment, kind of like we talked about earlier in the episode with Jurassic World. Now, I would venture to guess that most of you listening have played clank at some point in the hobby, so I'll keep the overview of the game relatively short. Ready, Scott? Here we go. Premise of Clank right. is that you're going into a dungeon represented by a board broken down with various spaces. Your goal is to grab one of the dragon's precious treasures within and get out. Mechanically... This is a deck building game where everyone starts with the same 10 kind of crappy cards. And every turn, you might modify your deck by adding something from a shared market. Cards typically offer movement on the board, purchasing power for more and better cards, or some fighting power. I think what most folks love about Clank is the mechanism by which the dragon gets progressively more irritated with the trespassers. <laughs> You've got a dragon bag. It's an opaque black bag that contains all black cubes at the start of the game, but anytime a player makes noise, or in this case... Oh, oh okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't have the video up there, and I'm like, did he freeze? <laughs> Say Clank, Scott. Clank. They add cubes of their own color 
to the bag. At various points, the dragon will attack, which means simply that a number of cubes are going to be pulled out of the bag. Black cubes don't do anything. But if a cube of your color gets pulled out, it goes on your health meter to represent that you've taken damage. Now, the makeup of the bag as the game progresses is going to become more filled with player cubes and fewer black cubes, making the impending danger ever more rising. At the end of the game, whoever is still alive and scored the most points will be the winner. Scott, we love Clank around here, don't we? Yes, yes. It's one that I've done regular Clank. I've done Clank in space. So, yeah, it's it's definitely one that I've played a few times there and have a great time with it. Enter 2019 and Clank Legacy was announced and my head exploded. <laughs> you mean to tell me we get to take one of my favorite board games and adjust it as we go? Sign me up. <laughs> so, as opposed to Clank... What do you do differently in Clank Legacy? All right, let's give it the old rundown. Let's uh, let's preface this. I'm going to try and do this without giving any major spoilers. Many of the things that I'm going to tell you that might sound like a spoiler, they're either thematic flavor or probably something that you would expect in any Legacy game. Like if I say, oh, you, you write on cards. Well, you probably knew that that was something that would be happening. That said, if you haven't played yet or you want to go in completely blind, you can skip to the end of the episode. <laughs> Clank Legacy. Good night, folks. <laughs> yeah. We've enjoyed yeah, this is our good night. We'll see you soon. Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated has the players taking on the role of new hires in an artifact-seeking company. Scott, you haven't played this, have you? I have not. Am I? No. Oh, I'm spoiling this for you. That's great. Each game begins with a flavor reading and instructions to pull out a patron card. It's like a terror-sized card that gives you special stipulations for this instance of the game. And it also might instruct you to pull cards from the card porium. This thing comes with a box with like the magnetic lid and it's got mm. probably 150 cards in it. And many of them are going to be added to decks. Many of them are going to be things you can get before games. Oftentimes though, they're cards that are added to the market and these patron cards, these tarot size cards that are at the start of each campaign game, they often instruct you to go get some things out of the card porium to add. You'll have instructions for which side of the board you're going to be used. We have a double-sided board. They have an overworld side and an underworld, each with their oh, wow. fair share of differences. Beyond that, you're going to start with your adventure and, and your base deck, just like you would in regular Clank. Now, what's really neat here is that the legacy element can happen during gameplay. I think back to Risk Legacy, and there was rarely, if ever, a game interruption for that sort of thing. You'd play the whole mm -hmm. game and then afterwards, be, okay, who won? Put this city, you know, name a city. Who got second place? You get a missile. You know what I mean? Like it would have all these adjustments afterwards. So sign the board. That's what I would think a normal thing would happen in a legacy game. Sure, sure. And that happens here. But there are also times where in the middle of the game, like if you hit this waypoint, stop. And read oh, this wow. entry and see what happens. So you're traveling the map in Clank Legacy. You hit a waypoint, uh, which is like a point of interest. Your story said something's going on at the tower. Put a waypoint token there. So somebody makes it there and you read the storybook. You see what the patron card says to do. Go to this entry. And it's going to give you some narrative. And oftentimes, this is going to include the need to alter the game in some way. Usually by going to a sticker sheet from this big old modification folder, pulling out new stickers and putting them on a the board. How about this for cool? Oftentimes, it's a pathway. 
Sometimes mm-hmm. these these waypoints are like they're at a dead end, and you'll open up the book, and it's a pathway. So you get to extend. Oh. Beyond that, sometimes there are two different paths, and you get to pick which sticker you're going to put. Or it's going to say you can either have this connected to the town or to the cave. And the player that got to the waypoint gets to decide how they're going to modify the board going forward. You actually make it so that your copy of Clank Legacy is entirely different from anyone else's. All right. So you finish your game. Like I said, it plays out just like any other. You go down, you get an artifact, and you get back to, in this case, it's your tavern instead of out of the castle. You'll finish your game. You have an epilogue of story, which might further alter the game. And then you record everyone's score on the back of the sheet. Now, Clank Legacy introduces a couple of neat things for that end game. As you meet various objectives, which are on the side of your personal deck box, like everybody gets their their Mm -hmm. deck of 10 cards, you have a little box with your character color and you keep them in there. So as things are modified, instead of doing a little baggie, you just put them in your box. Well, there's like- Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it is. There's like check marks of grudging approval. So if you've done something and the company has to recognize that you get a good job, there you go. Here You get a check mark. (laughs) It can lead to upgrades, it can lead to unlocks, but further, each game has a means of being awarded the game's associate spotlight, which is basically a little congrats for doing the tough thing that the original objective wanted the players to do, as spelled out on the patron cards. Some other alterations are going to be a little bit spoily here, so let's talk about what Clank Legacy does that's new and exciting that we wouldn't expect from a Legacy game. All right. As you play... You're going to be putting stickers on your starting cards. So those initial 10, like I had uh, one of the not, the, not the stumble, Burgle. It's the one that has a one buying power. I okay. was able to put a sticker on one that said, you know, when you play this, you may trash it. So I can immediately like remove it from the deck the first time I see it. Mm-hmm. One of the spaces that you add to the board, it's a volcano space. And basically, the, thematically, what it means is if you are on a volcano space, you can trash any one of your cards. You tossed it into the volcano. So they add a lot of ways to actually trash cards and get rid of it. They play around with the bag, the dragon bag. There are ruins spaces on the board and they have a white All cube. Right. It's literally the color white and it's represented by a white W-I-G-H-T, like a spirit. It's got one of those cubes Oh, okay. If somebody goes through a ruins, that white cube is added into the dragon bag. And any time it's pulled, everybody takes a damage. Oh. And the cube goes back into the bag instead of being removed permanently like as would normally happen. There are characters in the story that are actually going to become playable cards. Like Vriz is a is a wizard and you have – Vriz might be the first patron and you're interacting with Vriz and before you notice, oh, boom, here's the Vriz card at it. They have oh, wow. my okay. favorite card. They have what it doesn't have a name and it says skills blank, abilities blank, quote, blank. Then underneath that, it says anytime <laughs> someone buys this card, they get to fill in one of the blanks, which inevitably meant all kinds of things that I dare not repeat on the podcast got in there because the card was my older brother. We made Steve into a card and uh, eh, we have dirty minds. Look, <laughs> Clank doesn't need accolades thrown on it. Uh, it is still in the top 100 after all this time. And if you love good old-fashioned Clank, I can't imagine this not being one of the best gaming experiences you're ever going to have. Well, it's great to hear that because I know I don't have that much experience with Clank playing it over and over. Mm-hmm. But hearing your review of this, 
I want to go get this game now. This is something that needs to be added to my collection now, I think. It, it, I mean, it sounds like it's definitely in your top 100. Oh, no doubt. But still, with everything that goes on here with good games, there's always something that takes away. Was there anything that you didn't like in the game? Hardly, Scott. I, I mean, it, it is good old-fashioned clank, but you get to flavor it your own way. Okay, we got to say something here, right? I suppose that while I like legacy elements showing up during play, there were some times where it could mm-hmm. become quite cumbersome. Like, I'm sitting down because oh. I want to play some Clank. And I tell you what, we had a game or two. If the entire gameplay took, say, an hour and a half, I would venture a guess that a full half hour of that time was reading stories and then go to uh, folder K, sticker sheet L, group mm. B. Pick out okay. these stickers, put them here. Pick out these stickers, put them there. Go to the card porium, grab, grab cards 64 through 68, add them to the, you know what I mean? Like they're, oh, wow. Because it did introduce legacy elements during the game, there were times where it's like, oh my goodness, I just, I forget what I wanted to do on my next turn. Whose turn is it now? Because we've spent the last five minutes reading story and getting it. I mean, it's fun. Right. It's not a bad thing, but it can be cumbersome. And truly beyond that, I have zero complaints. This game was a blast. If someone hasn't played Clank, mm-hmm. is this inviting enough for someone that has never played Clank to play this? Or do you have to play the original Clank to really get the enjoyment out of this game? That's a good question. I think original Clank is very approachable. And this game starts off similar enough to original Clank that, you know, we all played our first game of Clank. And had to had to mm-hmm. grok and figure it out. Sure. What I would say is, would you want your first game of Risk ever to be Risk Legacy? No, you kind of want to know what you're doing. You know, like, this is the, okay, I know what I'm doing here. I want to soak in this right. story. Much like how we were saying with The Great Wall, the theme kind of got convoluted because your brain was working on math oh, and yes, numbers yes. and tracking. There's enough stuff going on that you're thinking about that... Some of the story could fall by the wayside. I suppose it's possible that your first game of Clank could be Clank Legacy, Adventure Number 1. I wouldn't recommend it. Mm -hmm. It's a game that I think you're going to really appreciate if you already know what you're doing. For that matter, they add things in. The back side of the board, for example, they have these uh, – there's like a pyramid space in the middle and you're going to these these special portals on the outsides of the board. By the end of it – even having played Clank a hundred times, by the end of Clank Legacy, it was like, okay, wait, what, is, what does a portal do? What is this? Okay, now I get this token. What does that do? I can't imagine being newer to deck building or brand new to Clank and taking on the Legacy campaign. Mm, It'd be a little, little Good complex, point. I think. Well, hey, that sounds awesome there. I mean, I'm glad you got to the end of it and actually finished it. Now, I know you kind of have a, a way of doing your legacy games and putting them in a big shadow box. Yeah. Is this one that's going to be in that? I don't or is know. this one that you can play later on? You can absolutely play it again, two sides of the board when you feel like it. And, you know, we had our meetup at, at Fabricators Forge, and Mike, who was one of the people that played in our campaign, I told him, hey, take Base Clank. That's an approachable game. So if we get some people that don't game a whole lot, they'll get the chance to play that one. And everybody right. likes it. So he took Base Clank, and I was talking to him on, on the way home. And he's like, you know what? I forgot, you know, after that whole legacy campaign, base clank felt kind of simple. It was, was kind of neat getting back into <laughs> just the very basic version of the game. Still plenty of fun, he said. It is still playable. And my brother and Mike and I all kind of agreed like, man, I, 
I wouldn't mind playing this again if we were going to play Clank and just continue to explore the board that we made. It also does say, like, you know, if you have waypoints that at the end of your campaign you haven't completed, well, keep them. The next time you play, you know, just... You don't have the, the the ledger on the back to record it as though it's an official part of your legacy campaign. Right. But there's no reason that you couldn't still discover that waypoint and, and complete, in quotes, your campaign and, and see all of your cards and whatnot. I'm not sure. So what you're talking about, my risk legacy pieces and board and photos and rule, mm-hmm. like all that stuff got cut out and I put it in a big old shadow box. I did the same with Seafall, which <laughs> I mean, it did Seafall. <laughs> Jason came over. He's like. You played that the whole way through? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do it with this one uh, because we might. We might actually get back to it. It's, it's going to take a little bit of thought. Absolutely 100% recommend Clank Legacy. Uh, price has gotten a little bit cheaper. If you're on the fence, man, get this game. What's wrong with you? I would play it again. Ryan would play it again. He said to the, the, the lobsters, they played it without me. They're like, hey, we'd play it again if you want to. If you're in, and I know Tom knows how to See, look, I'm shaking. I want to play it again already. <laughs> well, that's, that is a very high review of Clank Legacy. I love it, love it, love it. So I got to get him a chance to get that out and play that then as well. All right, Scott, we made it to the end of episode 54. You know what that means. It's time to talk about how we leveled up since we last spoke. And I'm noticing a trend with your levels, level ups, levels up. How did you level up, Scott? Yeah, yeah. We were on a vacation in Jamaica. We went to a sandals resort, the all-encompassing, all-inclusive resort. It was just a great time for my wife and I to spend time together laughing, enjoying the environment we were in, and just having a wonderful time together and kind of reconnecting. If you have a chance or the ability to do it, Definitely check one of those out. Scott, I'm going to venture a guess that eight of your last 10 level ups have been you went on a vacation somewhere. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt for this recording. You're still well, on vacation. Yeah, yeah. Well, in my mind, well, the other ones were just quick little weekends. Hmm. This was a good five, six day thing. Well, six days because our flights got all screwed up and I don't even want to talk about that. Now, how did you level up, Patrick? Scott, I put in here that the uh, the friendship with Nikki is how we got a hold of the Great Wall. She had it. She said, yeah, go ahead and borrow it. But furthermore, they that whole group, they went to Washington this, you know, what, the past weekend? And I was like, hey, oh. let me know if they have any any vendors there or any of the new games, et cetera. They have a, did they ever return to Dark Tower? And they did. And they had it at a good price. Ooh. She picked it up for me. So we have Return to Dark Tower ready for our next episode. Point is that friendship has gotten us uh, a handful of great games to continue to play and keep this on the budget. So thank you, Nikki. Yeah, Nikki has been a, a great helper with us and everything and just a great person in general. She has the smile and the laughter that just fills your soul with joy. So you're one in a million, Nikki. Adventurers, get out there and gain some EXP over the next couple of weeks. We actually don't have a side quest next week. (laughs) The first time in forever. Get back and listen to Feuds (laughs) and Favors. Let's get this thing funded. Get back and listen to Omicron Protocol, last week's episode. Combining minis with your board game. Loved it. I suppose that's all we got, Scott. It's, It's the end. I think it is. I think the boat has been shot. Until next time. Take care, my friend. Take care, adventurers. 
Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.